We're going to continue in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. For he is not subjected to angels, the world to come, that we are talking about. But someone somewhere testified, What is man that you remember him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, you left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not see everything subjected to him, but we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. This is the word of God. Good morning, church. Um, it is a joy to gather with you all, um, as I say that every week, but I mean it. Um, thank you for gathering here and making this a priority um, in your week, especially if you're visiting with us uh, this morning. I want to applaud you. I know that stepping into a new place uh, can be intimidating sometimes, and so thank you uh, for having the courage to step out. If I haven't got the chance to meet you, I would love to do that, and so I'm going to try to get better at like hanging out in the back. I don't know if you ever... Uh, Maybe growing up, your pastor would stand in the back, and I always felt like he was making me feel guilty for something. I don't know why. Um, but I thought, well, that's not a bad idea to just kind of hang out in the back and get to say bye to people. So if I'm doing that, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about anything. There's all my baggage coming out. So, uh, But yeah. So as you can see, we are continuing our series today through the book of Hebrews, and we are working our way through it just uh, passage by passage at a time. You just heard read today, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 5 through 9, so a little less of a chunk than we took on last week. We are going to be using the CSB version primarily if you want to follow along and make your way there either on your device or in your Bibles, however you want. We'll also have verses on the screen as we make our way through it. So we've said this for a couple weeks now, this is I think our third week in Hebrews, and every week we're reminding ourselves that this was most likely meant to be consumed in one whole sitting as a sermon. And I say that because it's helpful and there's context. We're going to see as the preacher of this sermon makes his way through the book, you're going to see a flow. And his main thing he's doing, remember, Jesus is better. He is making his case for the supremacy of Christ over all things. And so he's kind of using a lot of the historical narrative that the people would have been familiar with because he sees Jesus, and this is right, he sees it rightly, he sees Jesus and the work of the cross, his life, death, burial, and resurrection as the culmination of all Bible stories and themes. There's a lot of themes throughout scripture and Jesus is the point of it all. And so our preacher is taking different ideas. He's talked about angels last week. This week, he's going to talk about humanity. And he's showing us explicitly how they all find their fulfillment in Christ. And like I said, today, our text is looking at this through the lens of humanity, humans, men, men and women. And so what our preacher wants us to do to get the point he's making is to do what's called biblical theology. That means we zoom out a little bit and look at the historical narrative arc of scripture as it pertains to humans. And we're gonna do that a little bit through our time together. And what he's gonna do, because we need that foundation, he's going to help us see that ultimately Jesus became human and that's a beautiful thing. 
I don't really have any major points for us. We're gonna kind of just work through our passage and let it lead us to the beauty of Jesus as what's called the true and better Adam, the last Adam, as Paul talks about it, the son of man, as Jesus called himself. And I think by the end of our time together, maybe those uh, phrases will take on new meaning and what they mean for Christ. So remember last week, our preacher was making the case that Jesus is better than angels, okay? And that was where we flowed last week. A part of his argument that Jesus is better than angels was that angels were simply created to serve God's ultimate purposes of salvation of humanity through Christ. And so naturally, his flow of thought leads him to start talking a little bit about the dignity and glory of humans. So as he begins to transition to talk about humans, he starts in verse five, as you just heard read, by saying that the world to come will not be subjected to angels. And so by context, we understand that there will be those who the world to come, the final creation, there are those who will rule and reign in the eternal kingdom of God, but it will not be angels, it will be humans. And he kind of uses this to introduce this idea of humanity. He does this by quoting one of the seminal passages in the Old Testament that teach us about God's care for humanity and the value that he places on them. Again, what you see in bold is quotes from the Old Testament. So if you're in our scripture notebook, again, most of our passage is in bold. And so he's quoting Psalm chapter eight. Now you might remember in the summer, Blake preached on Psalm eight and he went through the Psalm and I think you actually went to this in Hebrews as a part of it. Um, and so Blake taught on this passage, but it is this passage that talks about how magnificent and majestic God's name is, is in all the earth. Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But then the Psalmist moves from that, all the things he created and he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And he starts talking about the beauty of humans and how God has created humans to reflect and image him in the world. It's the King David who is pinning this Psalm. And as he does it, he's moved to awe and wonder that this all powerful, all creating God would care and create humans. And so for us to understand the preacher's flow of thought in Hebrews, for us to see the bigness of Jesus, we have to first lay this foundation and understand a few things about humans that we learn from in his quoting of Hebrews 8. In verse six, he starts and he says, someone somewhere has testified. I love that. So if you forget where the passage you're quoting is, just borrow that and say, someone somewhere has testified, right? Um, I do that a lot. I'm like, I have no idea where it was. We have Google nowadays. Um, I should get better at learning the references. But uh, some commentators think it's more of almost like a, a little bit, I don't know if sarcasm is the best word, but it was such an obvious passage. It was very rooted in the Jewish story. And so it was like, yeah, someone somewhere, you know how that said, obviously everyone knew it was a passage of scripture. Um, Cool, someone just, sorry, my Apple just asked that uh, one of you wanted to get on the Wi-Fi. I swiped away, sorry, I should have let you do it. Sorry, you know who you are, I won't, I won't call you out. <laughs> uh, I didn't realize, I didn't think about that, so, <laughs> sorry. I am so, okay, yeah, quoted part of the passage. Someone somewhere has testified. Um, and this is what he says, right? He says, what is man, verse six, that you remember him or the son of man that you care for him? So the first thing we see about humans from this passage is that humans were created with care. 
The idea is that, and this is important for our theology, God notes and takes care of humans. They are not accidents. We can probably see this most clearly if we go back to the original creation story. And you remember that God is creating all these works of nature and the animal kingdom. And then at the apex on the sixth day of creation, we see God create humans. And there is something special about this. Everything, all the days before, we're simply creating this beautiful dwelling place for God and humanity to commune together. Commentators have pointed out it's very similar to the way the temple was set up. This dwelling place of God and humanity, except it's like this big scale. And we see this union between God and humans. You see the very breath of God breathe into the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. And they are intimately fashioned to be in union with Christ and then to reflect that union to the world. God and humanity walking in the cool of the day together, conversing, planning, laughing, relating, working together for the spread of his glory among the entire earth. Humans are at the apex of God's creation. Before there was ever original sin, and we have to talk about sin in the fall, Genesis 3. We're going to get there in a minute. But there's Genesis 1 and 2, and there is original glory and beauty in every single human. There is care for them. And this changes the way, or should, if we begin to believe this, the way we treat others. One of our core truths here at New Eden is this. Every human has inherent dignity and worth because they are created in the image of God. That is why we unequivocally affirm the value of every single human all the way from the womb to the tomb. It is why we send missionaries to places where the gospel has not yet taken root. It is why we celebrate and we welcome ethnic, social, and generational diversity in our midst. It's actually a good thing that people are different than you. It is why we are engaged in both individual and societal, both private and public acts of mercy and justice in the world. These are not just like optional add-on or pragmatic things that we do so we can reach more people. Like it is foundational to our display of the gospel. If we really begin to understand what Jesus, as we just sung about, that Jesus would die for the world, then it changes the way we treat other people. Even the people that look, sound, or act different than you do. Every single human was intimately formed in their mother's womb, created to display God's glory. And we'll talk about the rejection of that in a second. But it changes the way we talk about or joke or mock others, right? And I have to be, I'm convicted of this a lot. Just because someone is on the other side of the political aisle or the opposing sport team or a different theological tribe, does not mean we have freedom to cast aside their God-given dignity and demean them, call them names, mock them. You can disagree. That's not what I'm saying. We can disagree, but we don't strip someone's dignity away in the process, okay? And so if we find ourselves doing that, my point is not to shame you. It's hopefully that, that we would then ask the Spirit to help us believe and see them through the way God sees them, through His eyes, and we need the spirit to do that, right? And so we begin to see that humans were created with care, with intimacy. Not only that, our preacher tells us that humans were created for purpose. 
Okay, and this is a little more, we have to dig a little bit deeper, but in verse seven, he says that humans were created lower than the angels for a short time. Some translations say created a little lower than the angels. The point here is not really even getting into who has more value, angels or humans. Um, In fact, our author makes it out that humans will actually have more authority than angels in the new creation, okay? Paul says humans will judge angels in the world to come. So we're not talking about value here. This is an idea that there is a place and a purpose and an order for the existence of humanity. Humans aren't just an afterthought in God's plan. They're at the forefront of it. When he says a little lower, the context is like, can you believe that? That humans have that role in the plan of God. One of the prominent ideas of creation is a God that brings order from chaos. When when he's placing birds in the sky, it's not just this arbitrary thing. He is giving birds a home and saying, this is your purpose, this is your place. When he placed certain animals on the land and certain animals in in the sea, and then he gives the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night. It is this idea of order from chaos where things are just formless and no void and everybody's just floating and now there is order. And he says, humans have an amazing part in this place. You have purpose. And he says that humans is where we see the language of be fruitful and multiply. That is not just having biological kids, okay? That includes that. That's a piece of that, but it's bigger than that. It is multiplying image bears to spread and reflect God's glory to the world. That is the purpose created with purpose. That purpose has not changed. Even today, I would argue that none of us can completely be fulfilled outside of our purpose of, first of all, union with God. So I'll call that sitting with God and then spreading that, reflecting that union to the world and inviting others into that. I'll call that being sent by God, right? So both union, that's identity, and then mission as it flows from that. Created with care, created for purpose. And the next we see that humans were created for beauty, At the end of verse seven, we read that humans were crowned with glory and honor. Mankind crowned with glory and honor. We've looked at the dignity of humans, but this is taken even further. We don't understand honor, shame that much in our culture, but this culture did. And and to be crowned with glory and honor, it was this place of dignity and no one could strip it away. When God gives you your honor and your dignity, No matter what others say about you, that can't be taken away. This isn't a stealing God's glory. It is a good gift from God and he's placing his glory and honor and says, I am where your value comes from. And it's true if you think about it. Humans are remarkable creations, right? We just trying to survive and go about our life. But sometimes you sit back and you think about the things that humans are able to do and it's it's crazy, There is nothing in all the world quite like humans. We were in Gatlinburg for a couple nights over Christmas break and we went to the aquarium there. And so we're walking through and you have these just really weird, like different shapes and sizes, all these little creatures that they found in the bottom of the deepest oceans, right? And you're just looking at them. There's like some that are like lighting up like bright LED lights. And I'm like, man, this thing has existed forever. And like humans are just now learning how to like make LED color lights, right? It's just crazy. And that's just the things we've discovered. There are places and creatures that we've never even begun to explore. And that's just like the animal kingdom. On top of that, look at nature. If you've been to the Grand Canyon or the Niagara Falls or Monte Sano Mountain, 
That's a joke. I'm seeing if you're paying attention. All right, there we go. <laughs> but seriously, like even in our context, right? In little Alabama, if you've ever just seen a good sunset, it's gorgeous. Like, well, my kids will sometimes tell me, come look at the sky. It looks like cotton candy. And it's just there. And like there's a, a summer camp. Some of our students go to in Pisgah, Alabama. And sometimes we go to this ridge that's overlooking a sunset and we're like singing songs there. And it's, it's beautiful. But one time one of our leaders pointed this out and I love this. He said, hey, as beautiful as all that is, and it's amazing, we're all like staring at it. He's like, that is nothing compared to this group of humans. Like when I look at you, I see beauty. All of nature is nothing in comparison to the beauty of humans if we have eyes to see. The intricacies of the human mind, the diversities of the human body, the emotions, the humor, the ideas and the creations of both art and very functional machines. It is all incredibly beautiful. And it's not to bring glory to humans, it's ultimately to reflect the original creator, the glory and the beauty of God. Every human carries with it that beauty and that glory and that honor. Yesterday, I was working on this sermon, actually, in Scarlet. They like to come in my office. It's off the garage, and I've got a whiteboard there. And so they love to come out and just draw on it. So she's just drawing on it, and I, I pick her up. She's my five-year-old, and I set her on my lap, and I'm just looking at her, like, right in her face, like, really close, you know, and she's just smiling, and I'm looking at her eyes and her various features on her face, and I just tell her, Scarlet, you are so beautiful. And I ask her, I do this all the time, and I say, Scarlet, why are you so beautiful? And she knows the answer. And she said, because God created me. And I say, that's exactly right. Period. Not because God created me this way or that way or to look like, period. Because God created you, you are beautiful. And I tell them, if other people don't think you're beautiful or they call you ugly, that says more about them than you. And, and that, tells them that, that tells us that they're not having eyes to see like God does. And we are finite, right? We all see certain things as beautiful or not. But God sees all humans as beautiful because humans are created for glory and honor and beauty. And the last thing our passage points out is that humans are created for dominion. Look at verse eight again. It says that all things were subjected, everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, humans, he left nothing that is not subject to him or mankind. Our preacher quotes Psalm 8 and then begins to expand on it by saying that there is nothing on earth that is not subject to humanity. This is a poetic way of saying that humans have dominion over creation. This is not a new concept. Let's go back again to the creation story, right? Right after being told to be fruitful and multiply, humans were told to have dominion on the earth. Now, when we think of dominion, the idea that comes to mind is a little different than the biblical concept of dominion. We have seen power abused. We've seen dominion, people taking advantage, and subjugation is what we've seen more than dominion, the biblical idea, and we'll get to that in a minute. The idea here, maybe a better word for us is cultivation, Overall, humans are more gifted and have more abilities than plants and animals. And originally, before the fall, humans were to steward that power, that position, well. 
to cultivate life and beauty among the creation. To yes, be in charge. It's not inherently wrong to be in charge, but to be in charge as loving, wise leaders and stewards, to reflect the loving and good rule and reign of God. All this is in mind as our author talks about the beauty and value of humans. This is just a snapshot through Psalm 8, the care for humans their purpose in God's creation, their ability and gift to display beauty and their call to dominion and cultivation. As the psalmist back in Psalm 8 reflects on all of this, he poetically references all that God is doing with humanity, and it's a beautiful picture. Our preacher in Hebrews needs us to have this picture in mind. That's why he's quoting this Old Testament passage. But... Let's be honest for a second, okay? We can talk in theory about the call for humans. We can talk about the beauty of humanity, but you guys know we're pretty honest here. So if there's something that doesn't seem to line up, we'll just admit it, something seems off. Let's, let's think about the reality of humanity for a second. Yes, humans have been responsible for some of the most amazing inventions and art and projects that promote flourishing and life but I don't have to talk long for you to know that humans have also been responsible for some of the most horrific and ugly actions the world has ever seen. And it has led to division and death, the opposite of God's plan. From the Holocaust, slavery, the Colosseum games, the sacrifice of children, the list could go on and on and on. As it is, humans largely use their power not to serve and cultivate life and to spread God's kingdom and glory, but rather to subjugate others for their own purposes, to amass all the glory they can for themselves and to build their own kingdom, even sometimes under the guise of charity. No matter who it harms and who it hurts, that is the default position ever since the fall. Of humans. And I love that the preacher of Hebrews even acknowledges this reality. Look at the end of verse eight. He says, as it is, as it currently stands, let's be real. We don't see everything subjected to him. And I believe that him there is referring to humanity primarily. Some commentators interpret that as Jesus in like this already not yet stage. But the next verse I think will reveal, I think it primarily is talking about humanity. He quotes Psalms and shows us what humanity's plan was, but then he acknowledges that as it is, that's not what's actually going on. And to understand this, we do a little bit of biblical theology. We go back to the narrative of scripture. We talked about Genesis 1 and 2, original glory, creation story. But in Genesis 3, something insidious and devastating happens. And it's what theologians typically refer to as the fall. Adam and Eve, though created in a perfect place with glory and honor, they reject their role as humans by rebelling against God. It's what eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil was. That's not just arbitrarily not arbitrary knowledge. You've heard me say this. It's not just, well, I can tell what's good and evil. That idea of knowledge is the determination of good and evil. When I say something good, it's good. When I say something's evil, it's evil. And that's only reserved for God. So when we try to push God off the throne and say, no, I want to decide that we are trying to become gods. Instead of ruling over creation, 
They were ruled by it. Everything begins to flip. It's why we see the enemy, the devil, presented as a serpent. The same beings they were called to have dominion over turn around and deceive them. And from then on, humans seek to find their own fulfillment and beauty and purpose apart from God. And this fractured relationship leads to disaster. Immediately, you see two brothers, one's killing the other. Murder, deceit, strife, evil. Read the whole Old Testament. Keep reading. It gets bad. The rest of the scriptures is essentially, here's the brokenness of humanity on display. Even the, the, the good guys in the story are really jacked up. And that's the whole story of scripture. But also we see the patience of God as he refuses to give up on the project of humanity, those created in his image. And so Adam, who is the first man, he becomes this prototype as he reveals what we all do. None of us are better. I've said this before and I've heard other people say it. Man, I wish I was in the garden. Adam really jacked this up. Guess what? Like newsflash, you would have too. You prove it by your life. I prove it by my life. So he is this prototype. As we choose our own way over God's, when we reject our purpose and calling, divine calling to live in, in favor of lesser things. And it might seem innocent, but it's insidious. And like, it doesn't take long for you to look at your life and the world around us and know that it leads to destruction. We are caught in this vicious loop of sin destroying everything, both in our own hearts and in the world around us. Small ways, big ways. And the preacher acknowledges this reality. Things are not as they are supposed to be, as it is. It's not like it was supposed to be. But he doesn't leave us there. Look at verse nine. In contrast to the failure of humans, in contrast to the rejection of their purpose, we do see Jesus. But we do see Jesus. Made lower than the angels for a short time. Do you see how he's repurposing this psalm now? So that by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. You know, this is actually the first time that the name Jesus is mentioned in the book of Hebrews. He's referenced Jesus. We've seen it very clearly, but I love that he's, he's building up to this moment when he talks about humanity and the first Adam, and then he presents to us Jesus, the true and better human, the last Adam. We've seen already in Hebrews how Jesus is God. He's there at creation. But the one who created the fallen humans that we're talking about is also the one who himself becomes human to fix the mess that we created. Rather than abandoning his covenant commitment to humanity, he says, fine, you can't keep it, I will. And he enters into the world and he takes on flesh himself. It's like a parent who finally just steps in to clean the room because the kids just keep making it worse. But God does it in love and patience, not frustration like you do or like I do, right? Like, fine, you're just making it worse. Just let me do it. We looked for a while at humanity and now our preacher presents for us true humanity, Jesus himself. Every human ever born has rejected their God-given purpose and design except for one. 
Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, word made flesh was born. And like if we could grasp this, though he was God of the universe, though he created the angels himself, in a sense, he willingly became lower than them. Philippians 2, we see it in our passage and he takes on humanity. And I love this because Psalm 8 was not a messianic psalm. It was not a psalm that they said, hey, that's a psalm about the coming Messiah. But he says, it's still about Jesus. And he applies it to the coming Messiah and shows us that this lower than the angels, that this crowned with glory and honor is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. He's the truly faithful human, the better Adam. With his life, he knew he existed to serve God's purposes, God's kingdom. You might remember the story of him being tempted just like the first Adam, the enemy comes to him and tries to tempt him, tempt him into taking God's glory for his own. But Jesus refused. Sin will not rule over him. He is the true and better human who remains steadfast in the face of evil because he holds all power. But unlike humans, he doesn't use that power to subjugate and lord over. What does he do with his power? He bends down and he washes the feet of his disciples, including the one who is about to betray him. What? It doesn't make sense. And all of this, this giving up of his power and living his life in the way he did, it was leading him to death. Our preacher says, and I love the way he phrases this, that Jesus tasted death for everyone. See, when humans rebelled against God, it wasn't just a bad idea that you got a slap on the wrist for. Like the rebellion against God fractures the relationship and it breaks the system. God created it so that we were designed to have life connected to the life source, God himself. And so when we reject that, it leads to death. That is the result of our sin. The wages, the payment of sin is death. Death to ourselves and everything around us. No matter who you are, no matter how great of a person you are, no matter the amazing things you've done in your life, all of us are headed for death. Because of the fall, things deteriorate. I knew I shouldn't try to say that word. That's hard to say. Things cease to exist, right? Things break down. Death is a brutal part of life but it was never meant to be that way. So when Jesus becomes human and he enters into our mess, he knew he was giving himself over to death. The result of our sin was destructions and to save humans to deal with sin, it had to be dealt with. Jesus had to die. So even though he's the perfect human, he still willingly tastes death for everyone. And you know what's interesting when you read this phrase that he might taste death? It says, by God's grace. What? It is God's grace that Jesus is dying? Yes, it is grace for you because it is by his death that we receive hope and deliverance. There is not another human that could beat death by dying, that could stomp out the evil one by letting his own life be taken. But this is what Jesus does. 
but we know the story because we rehearse it every week. He doesn't stay dead because if he had, as Paul says in Romans, this is a joke. This is useless, but he doesn't stay dead. And in the resurrection and the ascension, he is crowned with glory and honor. Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 8. He beats sin and death and he shows us up close and personal how suffering will ultimately work glory. Just as the first Adam brought sin and death. So the second and true Adam, the true son of man, brings healing and life. So when you hear that Jesus is the last Adam or the true and better Adam, it's not just some random phrase. It has meaning and depth. It's why Jesus, you know the phrase that he used to talk about himself the most often? The son of man. He is true human, true humanity who redeems everyone. He perfectly ruled and reigned and cultivated life. And he offers this life from death for all who would believe. He tastes death for everyone. And so what he's doing here is as he tastes death, he is, he is inviting all of you. He is setting the table for you to come. And in exchange for your death that he tasted, he is inviting you to feast on life. He's saying, come, no matter who you are, everyone, come, taste, and see his goodness. That's the invitation. If you don't know Jesus, is to, to repent of, of all, like trying to reject that God-given purpose. And there's something better, and it is Christ, and trust his life, death, burial, and resurrection. No matter how much you try, you're just like the kid who spilled the milk and now just starts spreading it out. You can't fix your life. And that's actually good news. Like I'm not, I know I look mad probably. I'm just passionate. You can't do it. And that's, that's okay because Jesus did. This is what he offers us. And when we receive this, we actually become more fully human, not less. We are made a new creation. Paul explores this idea of us following Jesus into this in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 on the screen. He says, but as it is, Similar phrase, love it. Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep, which implies there's more to come. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ will, be, will all be made alive. All who trust in Jesus, even though death is in the future and it is our fate, it is nothing more than a speed bump on the way to eternal life. When we receive Christ in the new creation, as a new creation, excuse me, what are we told happens? We are breathed into the breath of the spirit. We saw that in creation, right? When humans are first created. And now we see it as we are made a new creation. We are breathed into the spirit of God. It is his heart that beats in us. It is his life that flows through our veins. And he changes us. The fruit of the spirit that is born is love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, gentleness. And that work that the spirit is doing in us, I know it feels like a long work and it's like this sometimes, but there is hope because that work will be complete. One day, the last enemy to be destroyed is death and it will be abolished forever and all things will be put under the feet of God. All injustice, big and small, all corrupt systems, the insidiousness of sin including in your own heart, will all be cast outside the kingdom. 
no more vicious cycle of sin. And he invites you into the story as God's people, because we will become fully human, perfectly and completely. We will rule and reign with Christ. We saw humanity, we saw true humanity, and now we see new humanity. This is what happens. Jesus doesn't just do this on his own. He invites all people into this. We become new humans. And so this vision, we're kind of in the already not yet. Like it's, it's absolutely true in one sense. And then we look at our lives and we're like, I wish I was a new human. Like I see this brokenness or I see this sin and this temptation, but there's this hope this already has happened, but not yet completely consummated. But that vision is what keeps us going in the here and now through temptation, through suffering, through death. Because we know that just as resurrection followed the cross for Jesus, so does life follow our suffering. And as the spirit causes this to take root in our hearts, it transforms us. The spirit that was breathing us, we can't stay the same. And it's not a bunch of trying harder and doing more and a bunch of rules. It is a new life that flows from within we actually begin to live like the new humans we already are. You are transformed by the spirit bringing you to believe what God has already done in you. It is done. He will complete the work. It's like I tell my daughter who struggles with deceit. I won't say which one, but it's the oldest one. She likes to be deceitful. And of course, I'm trying to deal with that. We're talking about sin and consequences and all these things. And then I'm like, Ev, like, here's the thing. I believe she's a believer. She's trusted in Christ. She confesses that he lived, died, buried, and rose again. And I said, Everly, look at me. You are a daughter of truth. You are not a daughter of lies. There is a father of lies, but you are not his. You are a daughter of the father of truth. And so your lips were created and designed and recreated in the cross and resurrection to speak truth because of what God has already made you to be. So I, the other day she told another, I was asking the girls, who did this? And she looked at Scarlett and she said, just tell the truth, Scarlett, you're a daughter of truth. And I'm like, let's freaking go. Now tell me who did it. Still didn't get the answer, but whatever. I'm like, speak truth. For those who are in Christ, I wanted to go to don't have time, but Romans, sin no longer has dominion over you. You are not enslaved to that. You are bound to Christ and his righteousness. And so as we are transformed, we begin to reflect God's beauty to the world. In the midst of a society that clamors and lives for power and control and getting theirs, we can give selflessly and love others, even our enemies, like Christ loved us. We can, as the new humanity, welcome in others into this, even those that are different than us, the outcast, the poor, the foreigner, we say, come on, like feast at the table. There is room. We are even willing to taste suffering and death on behalf of others because we know that in Christ, all that will somehow work a greater glory in the end. So my prayer for us at New Eden is that we would be able to, by God's grace, display to the world what Jesus has done for us. And that collectively with our lives, we could show a beautiful picture to the world of the new humanity as we are connected to the true and better human, Jesus himself. But we do see Jesus.